Hello and welcome to the Speaking for Him podcast. My name is Andrew Gamison and I have the privilege, as always, to be your host. I hope that you are having a wonderful Passion Week as we prepare for the most important day of the year for a believer, and that is Resurrection Sunday. We will definitely be reflecting on that as part of our episode today. Uh, the main part of our episode will be on The Chosen Season 2, Episode 5, which has a lot of content in it and addresses a lot of interesting storylines, and so I'm excited to dig into that with you. But first, let's look at what is going on. The first story I want to bring to your attention today deals with Alan West, who is a prominent black conservative visiting a college campus and the fallout thereof. University at Buffalo Student and Young Americans for Freedom President Therese Purcell joins me now. Therese, walk us through what happened to you. Hi, Todd. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, So I was hosting Lieutenant Colonel Alan West on campus. He was going to give a speech on how America is not racist, why American values are exceptional. And we got through the speech. Um, We had hundreds of people show up for the speech. We actually had a standby line with hundreds of people who weren't even able to get in since we filled the capacity of the room pretty quickly. Um, And then during the private meeting great with members, it got out of hand with the protesters. They were banging on the walls. They were screaming, no peace, no peace, which I took them at face value that they didn't want peace as they were trying to get in and trying to disrupt our meeting great. And then it got crazy as we went to leave. So I was following Colonel West out with our police escort as hundreds of protesters around us were screaming at us. And then I was quickly separated from the police as they were protecting uh, Colonel West, and the protesters came between me and them, which is when I decided I was just going to turn and walk peacefully back to my car. Um, And then I realized that I was the target for these protesters, and about 200 of my fellow students started hunting me down on campus, started chasing me, screaming, go get her, go get her, go capture her, get the girl in the red dress, which is when I started darting um, away from them as they were sprinting towards me, and eventually I turned the stairs and was one second ahead of them, which is when one of my friends pulled me into the men's bathroom, Um, and we just missed them, thankfully. They were just a few seconds behind, and while I was in the bathroom, I could hear them screaming, where is she, where is she, we need to find her, we need to find her, and I called 911. But while this was all happening, the mob continued to chase other members of our club, Young Americans for Freedom. They physically assaulted one of our e-board members. They kicked him. They punched him. It was a really crazy event that we were trying to bring a black voice to campus to talk about these issues of racism and American exceptionalism. And while they were screaming that we were trying to silence black voices, we were actually trying to bring this conversation to campus. We had an open Q&A during the event, but instead of asking peaceful questions, they decided to resort to violence. This is insane. I mean, this sounds like you were in a war zone, not on a college campus in the United States of America. If they caught you, what did you think they would do to you? I was really afraid for my life since they physically assaulted my friend. And like I said, they were screaming no peace. So I don't think they were going to do anything remotely peaceful. They were a very angry mob. And they were clearly saying that they were trying to chase me, that they wanted to capture me. So I'm afraid of what would have happened if I wasn't able to hide from them. What's going through your mind as this is all developing? Um, I was mostly thinking of how can I get away from this mob? It seemed like they were clearly trying to threaten me personally. I was somewhat surprised that I was their target. I thought that they were just chasing us. I didn't expect this since I didn't think it was going to be as controversial 
controversial to say on American campus that American values are a good thing. American values are worth protecting. Uh, I don't think they like Colonel West's message that <laughs> he did experience racism. Yeah. He grew up in the 1960s, 1970s in the South, but he overcame that and he decided not to be a victim, not to look at himself as a victim, and that America gave him that equality of opportunity that many other countries don't. And I think these like people like to see themselves as the victim and his message fundamentally challenged yeah. that. They want to maintain that victimhood because victimhood is powerful. A couple things coming out of this clip. First of all, it amazes me how many liberals in the name of nonviolence, because that's their shtick. They say, we're not violent. We want peace. We don't want war. That the, These are the type of people that are in the liberal left. And yet, in the name of peace... Many times they propagate violence. And this is just yet another example of why we can't have constructive conversations about issues. You know, the founding of our country was actually hammered out through many hours in the Continental Congress where people who were among the founding fathers discussed and disagreed on many things. But ultimately, they decided to unite or the founding of our country. So that's the first thing is that these leftists who purport to be fighting against the violent right end up propagating violence themselves. The second thing that I want to bring out is look at the reason for the violence. Did Alan West go on this campus and say, I hate you all because you're, you're leftists and liberals? No. Did Alan West say, um, you'll never amount to anything? No. The message that Alan West brought was, I struggled with racism. I had a lot to overcome in my life, but I overcame it, and I choose not to live a life of victimhood. You know, every one of us, myself included, has the choice to live as a victor or a victim. I've said on this podcast many times in relation to my disability that I could wake up each day with the idea, and sometimes justifiably so, that I'm a victim of my circumstance, that my wheelchair will limit me from doing the things that I want to do or doing the things that, more importantly, God wants me to do. And if you've heard my testimony, you know that for nine years, I lived that lie. That my wheelchair was what was holding me back from serving God and from having a great potential in whatever God led me to. But the reality is, the thing that was holding me back was my pride and my choice. On many of those mornings in that nine-year period, or afternoons, or any time of day you want to throw in there, my choice to choose the mentality of a victim. And so what happened when I was 14 years old, and I rededicated my life to Christ, and I said, I don't want to be on the throne of my life anymore, I want Christ to do it. What happened that day was the opportunity to crawl out of victimhood, and to claim victory in Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that I'm perfect? No. But by allowing myself to see myself the way God does, which is someone who has redeemed, who is blood-bought, and who has a purpose, 
I've been able to accomplish above and beyond that which I ever thought possible. And I still have goals and dreams, which I'm not going to stop pursuing because I have the mentality now, when I get up in the morning, what can I do to accomplish those goals, to chase those dreams that I have in the name of the Lord? So I just hope that you will take this opportunity to realize that we all have a choice no matter who we are, no matter what our circumstances are in this life, to embrace a victim or a victor mentality. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't all have hard things that we go through, and some of us harder or more visible than others. My choice to live as a victor does not mean that my wheelchair disappeared. It does not mean that it's easy for me to get outside jobs. It does not mean that having a romantic relationship or even certain platonic relationships are easy just because I have chosen to be a victor. No, these things are still challenges. But the difference in the mentality is I'm not sitting there blaming other people. Instead, I'm saying, God, why have you allowed this to occur in my life and what can I learn from it? And that is a transformative attitude that many people in our country need to understand. The next thing that I want to bring to your attention is Biden's remarks this past week on guns. President Biden cracking down on guns as America faces the impact of a historic crime wave. The president accused of having misplaced priorities and going after firearms and the Second Amendment instead of focusing on putting criminals behind bars. The president announcing a ban on so-called ghost gun kits, which are privately made firearms with untraceable parts, ordering his Department of Justice to make it illegal for a business to manufacture them. These guns are weapons of choice for many criminals. We're going to do everything we can to deprive them of that choice. And when we find them, put them in jail for a long, long time. If you commit a crime with a ghost gun, expect federal prosecution. Not just say, expect federal prosecution. This rule is an important step. It's going to sound bizarre. I support the Second Amendment. You have a right. But from the very beginning, the Second Amendment didn't say you can own any gun you want, as big as you want. You couldn't buy a cannon when, in fact, the Second Amendment passed. And certain people from the very beginning weren't allowed to purchase guns. It's nothing new. It's just rational. Ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. What the hell do you need 20 bullets for? You must be a hell of a terrible shot. There's nothing to do with recreation. Judge Janine oh. must come to you as you had your head, your hands, head was in your hands as you watched all of that. Uh, what do you think about it, especially the part of the prosecution being federal? You know what the amazing part of it is? There are very few federal gun crime prosecutions. The feds are very particular about what prosecutions they choose. I know this because I worked with them for 30 years as a prosecutor and a DA. And I just spent a couple of uh, minutes on the phone this afternoon with DAs who still say that the feds cherry pick the crimes that they want. Here's the bottom line. I have no problem with the president saying we got to prosecute these crimes. We absolutely have to prosecute them. Ghost guns are outrageous. There shouldn't be any ghost guns. But when when the president talks about 
you know, stopping gun crimes. It's not so much about the gun. It's about the criminal who uses the gun. It's about if you want to stop gun crime, you prosecute gun crime. And that means on the local level and on the federal level. That means when you arrest them, you keep them in jail until they go to trial if they've got any priors because they are a danger to the community. Last week, Dana, we spoke, we spoke about the Sacramento case where my friend, the DA, Anne-Marie Schubert in Sacramento County, said to the parole board, she said, look, this guy should not be released. He is a danger to the community. A 10-year sentence, they let him out in five or six years, and he went on to kill six people. This is the problem with the Democrats. They make it about the weapon. They don't make it about the person. Okay, so there's a couple things I want to talk about with this clip as well. First of all, I want to talk about the fact that Joe Biden got up and said that we need to prosecute these gun crimes, particularly the ghost gun crimes, but also other gun crimes as federal, as a federal issue. And then he proceeded to talk about ghost guns and to attack the second amendment as a whole. And I really liked what was said here by judge Janine when she said that a lot of times the Democrats make this about the gun and not about the person. The bottom line is that if I set a shotgun, even a loaded shotgun on my porch by itself in a chair, it's not going to shoot someone. It will stay there until I pick it up to use it. And I am the one who chooses to use it as a weapon. I am the aggressor and I should go to jail for assaulting someone or killing someone with a gun. That's the bottom line. The other thing that was mentioned here is that we like to layer laws upon laws. I have never said that we don't need any gun control. I believe that would be foolish. But one of the things I always say when we talk about this issue is, what are the laws we already have and what are the loopholes in those laws that a new law would fix? Because often what we find is it's not about needing a new law. It's about the fact that the laws that we have are not being enforced. So if you're not going to enforce the laws that are already on the books, what good does it do to add another law? On the ghost guns, I think that there were some solid points brought up about the potential dangers for them. I'm not going to dogmatically say you should outlaw them, but I can see some potential dangers. But when Biden's discussing this as a potentially dangerous thing, he undermines it by criticizing the Second Amendment. Now, he says that he's for the Second Amendment, and he says that you don't need high-powered weapons and, you know, if you need a, a magazine, then you're a horrible shot. But first of all, the Second Amendment is one of the shortest amendments in the entire Constitution. It says, basically in its entirety, the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. That's the entire amendment. There's, there's no exceptions no clauses put forth, okay? That's the first thing. 
The second thing I would say in regards to the Second Amendment is that the weapons of our enemies have gotten more sophisticated and higher tech. So to me, it makes sense then that the weapons we would use to fight back against them would become more high tech as well. But I think the biggest thing we need to realize is the Second Amendment doesn't have to do with sport or hunting. It has to do with defending ourselves. And the Founding Fathers knew very well that the country could turn on the citizens and that it was important for the citizens to be able to defend themselves against a a tyrant. That was the whole founding of our country, was we were defending ourselves against the tyranny of the king because we were independent colonies, but we were not being respected as such. So a history lesson is important. And I think that if we really want to see gun crimes go down, we need to get back to a Judeo-Christian ethic that says, you were created in the image of God, so don't throw away God's image. Because we've decided as a society that we don't want to go with the creation narrative, that we came here by a big bang. We decided as a society that we can abort our children to the tune of almost 70 million children since 1973. We've decided as a society that we can take marriage out of its original definition, one man, one woman for a lifetime, and make it mean what we want it to mean. And then we wonder why there's chaos in the streets. God is the author of order, The devil is the author of confusion. Something to think about, definitely. Before we move on to our main segment, I just want to turn our hearts and thoughts to Good Friday as we prepare for Resurrection Sunday. And so I'm going to be reading from the book of John, chapter 19, verses 23 through 30. And then I have a song that I want to share with you, which just really moves me. And I hope that it's a blessing to you as we move forward in this week. And as you go about whatever tasks you have to prepare for what is coming on Sunday and beyond. Because really, the resurrection signals the beginning of Christianity as we know it. Paul said, if Christ be not risen, we are of all men most miserable. So even if Christ did all the good things we know he did in his earthly life, if he had not risen from the dead, then we would not have the strong, vibrant church that we have today. The church is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason that Christianity is more than a religion is because every religion in the world serves someone who has died and gone into the annals of history. Only Christianity looks into the empty tomb and says, He is risen. He is risen indeed. So, I'm reading from the King James Version, John 19.23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments 
and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and gave up the ghost. I want to focus on a couple things here. First of all, one of the things I really like about this passage is that even as Jesus is giving his very lifeblood for us, he still remembers his earthly responsibility to care for his mother and to make sure that she has someone to care for her uh, because he is going away. And as the oldest son, it would be his responsibility to make sure that she had care. He gives her into John's care because as of this time, his brothers two of whom we know as James and Jude, had not yet come to believe in him as Messiah. And he obviously had a close relationship with John, John being in the inner circle and John leaning on his breast at the Last Supper. And so he appoints John to be his surrogate and to take Mary into his care. And he does so from that day. The next thing I want to mention is simply the phrase, It is finished. This is another distinction between Christianity and other religions. Most religions have a long list of things that you need to do in order to be worthy in that religion. And many people don't even know whether they are worthy. I'm reminded of a story I heard about an acquaintance of mine who went to a Jehovah's Witness meeting. I'm not sure how he got the opportunity to go to that meeting but they had the breaking of bread, the Lord's table. Jehovah's Witnesses do not partake of the communion service. They only have the elements out because to partake of the communion service is to know that you're worthy, and they believe there's no way for them to know that they are worthy. But thanks be to God, my Bible says, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. And so I am podcasting to you today as one who knows that he has eternal life and simply is trying to share with you how that is accomplished. And it is through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection three days later. So now I want to share with you a song, and this is a rewriting of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, specifically for the Easter season.
crown of thorns placed on his head. He knew that he would soon be dead. He said, "Did you forget me, Father? Did you?" Took from his head the thorny crown and wrapped him in a linen gown, then laid him down to rest inside the tomb. The holes in his hands, his feet inside.
And that song just makes me very emotional. And I thought it was very well done. And I hope that it was a blessing to you. That was an Easter hallelujah. And it was composed by Leonard Cohen. Lyrics by Kelly Mooney. And I will have the video for the two girls that sang this on my blog. Please make sure that you go to my blog, speakingforhim.blogspot.com, because all of the audio that I use on my podcast, I post there so that you can avail yourself of it. And so I just hope that blesses you on this Passion Week. Today I am reviewing another episode of The Chosen Season 2, and this is episode 5, and it's simply called Spirit. Now there's a lot in this episode, and I'm going to unpack some of it for you. First of all, with this disclaimer, this is one of those episodes that, as I said to you in previous episodes, I have struggled somewhat with episodes like this where there isn't as much scripture or actual Bible story in the narrative of the episode. That being said, I do think there is a lot of good things within it, and I think that the story that is unfolding as we go through this episode is plausible. So I just wanted to put that out there in the beginning of this episode. And now, let me share with you our quote of the day. And our quote of the day centers around a conversation that Jesus has with Simon the Zealot as he's beginning the process of welcoming him into the circle of disciples. He says, I have everything I need. I wanted you. And this is in response to Simon, even as he's coming into the apostles, trying to continue his physical fitness and all the things that he learned in his zealot training and thinking that that's what he should bring to the table as a disciple of Christ. And he says, if you throw away my knife, because that is one thing that happens here, Jesus says, let me see your weapon. And then he throws it into the water. He says, if you threw away my knife, then what is it that you need me for? Because my biggest skills are my battle skills, my ability to fight in combat. And Jesus says something really profound. I have everything I need. I wanted you. And I think that is so profound, really, because... That is really the way that God is toward us as well. God in himself is perfect. There's nothing more perfect than God. So when he created mankind, it's because he wanted us. When he brings us into his family, yes, he gives us work to do. But God can accomplish things through his own means. He doesn't need people to do it. The example that I always go back to is the example of Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. God could have very easily said, 
I want the children of Israel out of Egypt. I'm just going to say the word. The Egyptians are all going to die, and the Israelites are going to walk out on their own two feet, and I will preserve them and never appoint any human to the task of rescuing them. But that's not what he chooses to do. He chooses Moses for the task. And he says, I will be with you, and I will tell you what to say. But he doesn't let Moses off the hook, even though Moses argues for a chapter and a half in Exodus, basically, about why he cannot do this. He says, send anyone else. Anyone else you can think of to send, send them, but not me. And God says, I made your mouth. I will tell you what to say. Just go and do what I ask you to do. And that is really the way God called the 12 disciples, and that's the way he calls us as well. And so as we think about this quote, I really think it should resonate with all of us that God has what he needs, but he wants you and I. And that makes me feel very special and very loved, and I hope that it blesses you as well. Well, before we move into the discussion of this episode, I thought it was very important to share a little bit from the heart of the director, Dallas Jenkins, because again, this is an episode that uh, had some controversy attached to it, and I think it's really good to get his direct perspective so that you're not just assuming things that he may have thought. Now we've got this key moment where Mary can't take it. She's seen too much. She's too triggered. She doesn't know how to ask for help, and she leaves. Jesus, of course, knows that. Jesus says to Rama, go check on Mary. He says to a couple of the boys to take care of Caleb. I mean, Jesus immediately kind of knows everyone needs some looking after. I'm going to go deal with this guy who has been following me and who I've been indirectly pursuing. I'm going to bring him into the group. We're going to walk away. So he sends Rama. Now we get into this discussion of would Mary really leave and what exactly is happening to her. And we see her walking by herself. And when she is walking towards Jericho, a Roman soldier comes by again. Well, how does she react this time? This time, she's defiant. This time, she makes herself strong. And she is, in many ways, reverting back to herself, her Lilith self, not demon-possessed, the person who she was when she was less tender. And so she just decides, I'm going to face this. And she stares at him. And the fact that he just keeps going, I think there's a part of her that goes, huh, okay, that's interesting. And she gives a slight smirk. I mean, it's up to you to decide how you interpret that. But we know that when people are triggered or when they, they revert to their safe, their former safety nets. And once you decide to run, once you decide to pursue that thing that you know is bad for you, but you need it, nothing's going to change you. And you actually become, in many ways, a different person. And that's what's happening to Mary here. And so she is heading back to the things that she knew in her past, the things that fed her, the things that were her safety net, because she clearly, in her mind, can't rely on Scripture. Even if she could, she's not capable of it. She's not good enough. She's not worthy enough. And so she's going to do this on her own and rely on her own strength. And so she heads to the bar, 
and she heads to people we haven't seen before. This is a different bar we've never seen, but she clearly has a history there. She clearly knows the bartender. She's gambled there before. She says, I'm here to win my money back. She's got a little bit of money from the group pot, just a tiny, tiny bit of money that she's at least pretending to, to have. At least she's claiming she has, and she's going to win some money back that she's lost in the past. And that's what, of course, those people from her past, that's what they care about. They care about money. They care about, you know, selling alcohol. That's what she does, and that's why he's happy to see her. And at the door, when the bouncer is saying, you're a nice girl, you should leave, she says, I'm not a nice girl. And she takes her veil off. Now, no, that's not a prostitution thing. Mary Magdalene is not a prostitute. We do not portray her as a prostitute. We never have. But in that moment, it's just like, a, I'm not Jewish right now. I'm not modest. I'm not demure. I'm tough. And he's like, all right, I got it. And he lets her in. And we'll see what happens in episode six. Now, is this plausible? There are some people who were very upset by the storyline, had a nearly impossible time believing that Mary could have relapsed because she's been redeemed. Once you've been redeemed, once you've been saved by God, why would you ever revert? She has the power of Christ in her now, and this would never happen, and this is, you know, a a disturbing storyline that we've created. I did a video about this. It's in our YouTube channel where I go more in depth. I take like five or six minutes about my feelings about that. I encourage you to check that video out if you want to know my feelings about the relapse because I'm actually pretty upset about some of the responses that we got. Um, not because of the show. I don't care about defending the show. Just from a spiritual standpoint, I find the perspective that some people had about this storyline to be actually offensive and unbiblical. And so you can see the video. You can cl- uh, link to it to watch that video or the link will be in the description about my thoughts on the Mary storyline. But we got this letter. This should give you an idea of why we did this storyline and why I believe that it's not only plausible but helpful to see. And this person writes, I was Mary. Jesus supernaturally delivered me from demonic torment when I was 15 and then I backslid a couple years later. I did things and had something happen to me while I was backslidden that still haunt me. I was told that what happened to me was God punishing me because of my sin. Sometimes I still struggle with feeling unclean and unworthy of Jesus' love. I felt so much shame. He saved me, and then I went back to my sin. How could he still love me? All that to say, I'm sure you can imagine how emotional I am about Mary's storyline this season. I really, really can't wait for episode 6 to come so I can see how Jesus treats Mary, because I thought that Jesus was mad at me and ashamed of me and disgusted with me and didn't want me anymore when I backslid and then was abused. But I have a feeling that one's that, but I have a feeling that what ends up happening will be very healing to see. Spoiler alert, she just might be right. So let me just give you a brief overview of this episode to start. First of all, we start with kind of a continuation of the last episode, which was the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And I remember in the last episode, I said I was a little bit disappointed by the fact that, that they didn't address the fact that Jesus said, go and sin no more. But actually that is addressed in the beginning of this episode where Jesse is relating to the religious leaders. Hey, he came back to me and he told me to make sure to go and sin no more. And then the religious leaders were challenging him to tell him everything else that Jesus had said. And, and they're narrowing in on Jesus of Nazareth. Um, they've been kind of trying to chase him down, as it was often the case in the scriptures. And so he's just telling his story, and he's pacing. And one of the things 
they say is that he should just stop pacing. And he said, well, I haven't been able to walk for years, and now I can. So this is a big deal to me. And so that's the first thing we see. And then the next thing we see is, is Mary Magdalene picking persimmons. And she's working on memorizing Torah, and she's enjoying her time picking fruit. And she's just out by herself. And she sees a Roman soldier. And she gets triggered and starts thinking about her past. And instead of going to Jesus and addressing it with him, she allows it to be the beginning of a downward spiral. So I think that's the first lesson that whether or not this actually happened is still a practical lesson for us. When we mess up, when we sin, is our first reaction to go to Jesus? Often it is not. Often it is to draw away from Jesus, and that leads to more difficulties. So the encouragement here is to draw close to Jesus and allow him to bring us back to himself because we cannot do that on our own. And so as the episode goes on, you see Mary dealing with her demons, this time the demons of her past, not literal demons, but she's really dealing with a lot, um, but she's not willing to tell anyone what she is going through. Um, we see this progress to um, Simon the Zealot and his um, finding of the disciples and basically joining up with them and then being welcomed by Jesus. We see Simon confronting a, de a demon-possessed man and realizing that he can't cast out the demon. And again, it comes down to needing Jesus to be that help, needing Jesus to come in and intervene. And Jesus, of course, runs up on the situation as Simon is being choked and says, come out of the man, and the man falls down as if he were dead. And the demon comes out of him, and now the man is in his right mind. Jesus turns him over and asks him what his name is, and he says, Caleb. Uh, there's actually a scene earlier when Mary talks to this demon-possessed man, and first she's talking to the demon, and the demon knows the name that uh, she went by, which was Lilith, um, pre-redemption, and so the demon knows her, and she tries to get Caleb to give his name, but he can't because the demon is restraining him, but then after Jesus casts out the demon, uh, he's able to give the name, and he is able to get help from the disciples after Jesus has done his work. And Jesus gives him into the care of the disciples and says, get him food and care for his other needs. And Jesus shows here, too, that he has an inkling of what is going on with Mary. And so he sends Ramah to look in on Mary and the result of that is that, as Dallas relates in that clip, Mary ultimately wanted to be alone and then eventually left the safety of the camp with the disciples and Jesus. 
we see her drawing away from where she needs to be. And I think we can all relate to this idea of going to the exact opposite place in life where we need to be when we are struggling with life and when we're struggling with the sins that so easily beset us. We need to go to God and and make short accounts and ask him for help instead of drawing away. But we see also in this uh, episode some scenes with Jesus and John the Baptist. Again, we are not privy to a lot of discussions between John the Baptist, but another thing that Dallas uh, points out in this in this video is that Jesus and John the Baptist actually had at least a couple of discussions, one of them being when John said, you should baptize me, not me baptizing you. Like, he was willing to stand up and say, Jesus, I respect you, but I think you're wrong about this. And then when John was questioning whether Jesus was the Messiah, even though he knew it was true, he needed the reassurance, and then Jesus comes back and says, tell him about the lepers that are cleansed and the blind that receive their sight, and tell him, you know, all the things that you have seen, and thus he confirmed that he was the Messiah. So we see this relationship between them where John is willing to confront Jesus with hard things that he doesn't understand. And I think that is conveyed very well in these scenes. Um, And then you have Jesus talking to John essentially about the cost of discipleship and about are you willing to give up everything in order to do this thing? And he basically says, you have my heart. And Jesus says, in whatever you do, seek God's wisdom on it and and do what he says for you to do. And John's response is, I will always seek to do that. Um, basically, he just says the simple word always. But that is his focus, to serve and honor God. And so, of course, if you read the story of John the Baptist, you know that he ultimately gave up his life to the king um, because the king's wife, who he had unlawfully wed, uh, was upset about John confronting the king, which is the event that Jesus and John are conversing about. Then you have the storyline of Simon the Zealot and his struggle, as I said, to, to come to terms with the fact that maybe Jesus didn't need him to be this fierce fighting man, um, but simply needed him to be available for whatever um, God wanted him to do. It's kind of a common quote, but also a good one that says, the best ability is availability. And so I really like how that is brought out in this. And then with the Mary Magdalene storyline, she ultimately goes back to a bar, and I and I think the implication is that she wants to gamble to get some of her money back because she had lost money before. And as part of this scene, she takes her her head covering off, her veil off, and 
and is decidedly un-Jewish, as Dallas put it, and just is distancing herself from everything that Jesus has done in her life because she feels shame, because she feels remorse, because she doesn't feel worthy to be the disciple that she was. And, you know, there was a lot of controversy about whether that might have happened. And even for me, when I first watched it, I was like, this seems strange that they would do this. But I really watched the the video that Dallas uh, referenced in his review of this episode where he explained his reasoning for it. And I, I really have to say that I resonated with it. You know, as I look at my own life, I'm far from perfect. And there are things that I still do as a believer that I, I don't like. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, those things that I would do, those I do not. And those things that I would not do, those things I do. Paul is talking in the present tense. He's not talking in the past tense. Some people make, I believe, the dangerous mistake of saying that Paul got to a place where he is no longer sinning. But I think that that is is not a, a reality for the believer. Because there's a lot about sin in the epistles written to believers. James says, confess your faults one to another. Why would we have to do that if we as believers didn't have faults? And then we have it written in First uh, John 2.1. I write these things that you do not sin, but if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The difference between me and someone who has not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God is not the fact that I never sin. It is the fact that when I do sin, I have an advocate before the throne of God who shows his hands and his feet and his side and says, I paid for that sin. And then we have Peter and Matthew, an unlikely pairing, going to look for Mary because they know that something's wrong and they want to bring her back into the group, into the fellowship. And that's really the cliffhanger where this episode is left. So what do I see as a criticism for this episode? I I think I would have liked it if they would have included another solid Storyline that was directly from the Bible. Again, I feel like the storyline was plausible, so it works. But I think it takes a little bit away from it when you don't have um, a solid verse-by-verse story that you can direct to in an episode. That being said, uh, we do know that things happen to the disciples and to those that followed Jesus that weren't necessarily recorded in the scriptures. So I think when you think about it in that mode, I think there is some benefit to it. I definitely resonated with the fact that making a mistake or struggling with sin after you're a believer does not disqualify you from serving him. And it actually is part and parcel 
of being human. I mean, we'll, we will see that in the life of Peter over and over again. He has extreme highs and extreme lows uh, because he has a big mouth and it gets him into trouble. Uh, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he says, don't tell us you're going to die. Uh, that's foolish talk, basically, my paraphrase. And then Jesus' response is, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, obviously, the way things are written in the Bible, we don't know how far those events were apart, but chances are they weren't that far apart. They're only a chapter apart, approximately, in the text. And then we have Peter again saying, I'll die for you. And then when the rubber meets the road, he says, I never knew that man. But Jesus didn't count him out. As a matter of fact, he said, go tell my disciples and Peter that I go before them into Galilee. So I think as we look at this episode, we can see that one of the big lessons is we can't do anything without Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 15, without me, you can do nothing. And we saw that in Simon the Zealot. As athletic as he was and as skilled as he was, no matter how hard he tried, he could not defeat the demon. Jesus needed to defeat the demon. We, we see that in Mary. Uh, she thinks that she can handle this by herself, or rather she thinks she has to handle it by herself because she's filled with shame. But the farther away she gets, the more desperate she gets and the worse it gets instead of drawing close to God she was drawing away and the Bible says draw near to God that he may draw near to you and so I really resonated with a lot of the lessons in this episode and then like I said bringing it back to the man of Bethesda and just realizing that not only was he physically healed, but he was given a warning about the dangers of sin from Jesus. Again, I tend to believe that that particular story was tied to a specific sin in his life because of the way uh, Jesus spoke to him, because he said, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing befall you. But the biggest thing to take away from that, regardless of what actually happened, is that it was more than just a physical transformation on his part. There was a spiritual transformation there as well. Well, those are my reflections on The Chosen Season 2, Episode 5. I hope you enjoyed uh, that as well as the other segments in the show. That's about all I have time for. I just hope that you have a wonderful Resurrection Sunday with your family and that you spend the rest of this week reflecting on the wonderful gift that God has given us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen again. If it wasn't for those three things, speaking for him would not exist. With that being said, I will simply say, have a great weekend and keep serving the best of masters. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.